0: Thank you team for leading us, and helping us to sing, and sing that we can—like we believe that God is good. Yes. All my life He has been faithful. And some of us live you know, a bit longer than some of the others of y'all, and we can still say all my life He has been faithful. He's been so, so good, (laughs) amen. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. We are grateful. Amen. Thank you so much. Lord, we give you thanks today because you are great, greatly to be praised. We thank you for the freedom we have, this opportunity we have to lift your name up, to magnify your name. We don't make you big, but we see you big. We see you. We want to see you even more as the great God that you are. Lord, help us to believe that you are indeed able. Those those words so powerful for some singing with conviction, some singing with just hopefulness that we can one day really truly say that you've been faithful and we can say with conviction you have been good. And Lord, I pray right now for Newcom in this season, this interim phase, Lord, you are showing your faithfulness, you are providing what's needed, and you are continuing to sustain this awesome congregation. And I pray, Lord God, that your will continue to be done. You would lead, you would guide, you would make things evident as as needed. You would uh, help them to see what you've already done and even have expectation about what you will do. I pray, Lord God, right now, that you'd help me to communicate the truthfulness of your word and help me to to communicate in a way that would um, uh, be relevant for the the community gathered here. Lord, I want the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable in your sight. You are our strength, our rock, our redeemer. And those same words, Lord God, I hope that they would uh, resonate with my sisters and brothers here today. So, Lord, we pray for your will to be done in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Once again, I thank you for the opportunity to be with you. Some of you saw we had a couple of little ones with us. I mentioned how last week Susan was away and she was uh, sad and she couldn't be here, but she was delighted she got to be with one of our grands down in Florida, but two that live closer than Florida are with us this weekend uh, without their parents pray for me (laughs) because this parenting thing is for the young folks (laughs) but being a grandparent is is has its own uh, joys (laughs) well there's this football game this afternoon i know you know i i used to really be into football i tried to play football i um i played just one year in college they didn't need my services but i um but i really enjoyed the sport for a lot of years and then The last several years, I kind of haven't really been into it as much. I don't know what that says about me or stuff, but for those of you who are watching the commercials and the game that happens around them, um, enjoy yourselves and enjoy the fellowship, (laughs) and I hope you can have a good time. (laughs) It was around 1970 that Paul McCartney announced his departure. So George, John, and Ringo—they wrote about what John called the divorce. They said the world is still spinning, and so are we, and so are you. I think they said it with this British accent, but I'm not going to do that. Is that when the spinning stops? That will be the time to worry. Not now. Until then, the Beatles are alive and well, and the beat goes on. Breakup of the Beatles is perhaps the most famous all-band breakups, at least in my era. Outside of music, there have been other famous breakups. In the world of manufacturing, you may have heard of the Dassler brothers in Germany, Adi and Rudy. After 25 years of working together, they had a bitter falling out, opened up rival shoe companies on opposite sides of the same river, just across from each other. I mean, come on. Rudy Dassler created the Puma brand, and his brother Adi Dassler, of course, made Adidas shoes. In the world of relationships, there are a lot of reasons why people break up. I came across these stories of why some people broke off their relationships. I hope they're not triggering, but you might appreciate these. She ate my burger that I ordered at Chili's. I asked her if she wanted food. She said no. Right as the food came, I went to the bathroom. I came back and the bleeping burger was gone. Oops, I'm sorry, I was a little hungry. We had planned to do dinner and a movie, but I had to work late, so we stopped at Chick-fil-A on the way to the theater. After she finished eating, she threw her trash out of my car and into the street. I never spoke to her again after that day. His toenails were so long they clicked on the floor like a dog. (laughs) She refused to eat anything besides chicken nuggets and french fries. No substitutions. Not chicken tenders. Not chicken strips. If we went somewhere without nuggets and fries, she would just order a Coke and watch me eat. I once made the mistake of cooking dinner for her. She took one bite and asked if I would be offended if she ran to McDonald's to get nuggets and fries. (laughs) I was with a guy, and we were watching Apollo 13 several years ago. He looked at me all seriously and said, wow, I hope they get back okay. I couldn't date him after that. She ate her peas one at a time, one at a time. (laughs) He put A1 all over the filet mignon I made him for Valentine's Day, and he wanted it well done. A woman's got to have a code. (laughs) She was allergic to peanut butter, like really bad. If I was going to see her, I couldn't have peanut butter for the two days before. That's a life I don't want to live. I hadn't realized so many breakups had to do with food. (laughs) Now, if, if we thought about it, surely we can come up with many more examples of people, companies, teams, organizations that went through breakups. Breakups are traumatic, and I was trying to get us to laugh a bit because the reality is that not only is breaking up hard to do, so is recovering from that breakup. So maybe at this point you've picked up that our emphasis so far in Philippians is still on unity. And one of the worst kinds of breakups is that of a church. When unity is lost, there are sad, painful, debilitating results. And I know that the Apostle Paul understands that. We're looking at you, Corinthians. That was supposed to be funny, but maybe it wasn't. They they were the ones that were in factions and all—okay, well, anyway. The apostle Paul understands this breaking up part, and I believe that it's why he goes to the issue of unity in this letter. I mean, last week we were pointing out uh, 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 information about partnership or koinonia, or solidarity. That's a big part of Paul's message, it continues on certainly for today. We're going to see more about unity, how the Lord Jesus is the ultimate source of unity, and he's also the perfect example of what it takes to make unity a reality. So let me read here Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27, into the beginning of chapter 2. Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponent. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have." Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." The Lord adds blessing to the reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. Now whenever, or most ever, the apostle Paul discusses ethical behavior, he follows the Jewish tradition of using the word walk as for a descriptor of how we should live. And he's making a transition here to talk about how we should live after he's been reflecting on his situation and praying for this community. You might be familiar with the beginning of Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. So in Jewish thinking, walking is a metaphor for living. The same is the case when Jewish writers write in the New Testament. Sometimes our English uh, translations, they they will obscure that, and they'll use the word live because that is what he means. But actually, most typically, Paul uses the word walk when he talks about godly behavior. Now, there are too many examples to share with you. I'm just going to mention one just to make my point, and hopefully will resonate with you. He writes this to the Corinthians in the second letter, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Walking, living, a way of life. If we could understand and appreciate the significance of this image of walking, that it's so much throughout the Bible, it's especially interesting and noteworthy that Paul doesn't use the word here when he starts discussing upright behavior with the Philippians. Right here in verse 27, the apostle Paul moves from introductory matters, words of admonition, he's getting very pastoral, and instead of using his typical word, walk, he switches up and he uses a word that's very rare in the Bible. In fact, it's only here and one other place, and um, and it comes from the world of civics. Now, I'm often reluctant to mention Greek words from the pulpit, but the sound of this one will help to make my point. He uses a word here, it, it's related to the word polis, if you can hear that. The Greek word for city or state. We get words like policy and politics from that word. So this word, polituistai, literally means conduct yourself as a good citizen. Hmm. The Apostle Paul, he is playing off of this concept of citizenship, and he does it to a group of people who are particularly aware of what that means. See, this this Philippian community is known for their devotion to Rome and their understanding of good citizenship. They they well understood this. Philippi was no ordinary Roman city. Now, I mentioned to you last week that we get a little intro to uh, Philippi back in in the book of Acts in chapter 16. I'm not going to go all the way back there again, but it's there in 16 that Luke calls Philippi a protos city, a first city, a leading city. Not the capital of the empire, but a very special and powerful city. It would be like New York for us, you know? It's not the capital of the United States, but it's a leading city. Philippi was a colony of Rome also, and Luke points that out, a colony of Rome. As a colony, it enjoyed a special status with the empire. It was exempt from certain taxes. It was was interestingly initially populated not just by farmers, but by ex-military, soldiers, veterans, people most loyal to the empire. So when Paul says, conduct yourselves as good citizens with respect to the gospel, there's some images that would have popped into the Philippians' heads. The Philippians understood good citizenship to mean a commitment to the community, to the polis. This is how one one scholar describes it. To the ancient Greek, the state, the polis, was by no means merely a place to live, it was rather a sort of partnership formed with a view to having people attain the highest of all human goods. Here in the state, the individual citizen developed his gifts, realized his potential not in isolation, but in cooperation. Here he was able to maximize his abilities not by himself or for himself, but in community and for the good of the community. As a consequence. Mutuality and interdependence were important ideas inhering in the concept of polis. To live as a citizen, therefore, meant for the Greek and later the Roman, rights and privileges, but also duties and responsibilities. Now, of course, those words apply to the citizens, not to the enslaved population. We'll come back to them in a moment. But did you catch that part about mutuality, interdependence? This is what Paul wants for this community. And I'm sure we want it for ourselves too, but he's saying how you achieve this is not the way typical Philippian society would have taught you to achieve it. Paul is telling these folks to live in their Roman colony as worthy citizens of their heavenly home. A little later, chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to play off of this very word, and he's going to say our citizenship is in heaven. It's from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our citizenship in heaven. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. understood this concept found here in Philippians. He preached a sermon that plays off of this very letter and this very notion. The sermon is entitled Paul's Letter to America. Now, here's a little bit of what that said. But American Christians, I must say to you, as I said to the Roman Christians years ago, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or as I said to the Philippian Christians, you are a colony of heaven. This means that although you live in the colony of time, your ultimate allegiance is to the empire of eternity. You have a dual citizenry. You live both in time and eternity, both in heaven and earth, therefore. Your ultimate allegiance is not to the government, not to the state, not to the nation, not to any man-made institution. The Christian owes his ultimate allegiance to God, and if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to take a stand against it. You must never allow the transitory evanescent demands of man-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of the Almighty God." Oh my goodness. I mean, evanescent, I had to look that one up because <laughs> I'm like, he was just throwing that into a sermon. I, anyway, I could go down a whole nother road about Dr. King's sermons. But are you catching this? You are a colony of heaven. He's playing right off of this Philippians message. What Paul is saying is you understand what good citizenship entails, so if you're truly citizens of heaven, then act like good heavenly citizens. So for the Philippians, the idea of good citizenship must apply to their relationship with God and each other more than their identity as Philippians. Are you catching this? Christian identity trumps national identity. Oh my goodness. There were some people yelling that back in election, you know, but I'm not going down that road right now. (laughs) Paul tells one of the most powerful cities in the Roman Empire, one of the most powerful, that their citizenship is in heaven. Now think how that sounded if you are enslaved. The Romans don't have all the power. God's city is more powerful than Rome. The emperor doesn't have all the power. Jesus is the real king. This is hopeful information when you're on the bottom. If you're among the social elite of Philippi, then Paul's words confront your social position. No matter what status you've gained in the world, your real allegiance is to the kingdom of God. This affects the way you're going to treat people who aren't in your social position. So Dr. King now is demonstrating how Paul's admonition here way back applies to us. Our heavenly citizenship takes priority over any earthly allegiance. You might have pledged allegiance to a flag and to the republic for which it stands, but where is your ultimate allegiance? It has to be with the Lord Jesus. No matter what country we live in, we are heavenly citizens, members of God's kingdom, because Jesus paid the price to liberate us from the kingdom of darkness. We have been set free from sin. We have been rescued from eternal death. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We have been brought with the precious blood of Jesus. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. He paid the price to free me. If you've been able to track my comments here about citizenship, you're getting my overarching point here, that being together in one spirit requires living as heavenly citizens. So living as heavenly citizens has implications, of course, to it, and that's Paul's working that out after he's made that command right in verse 27. And one of the implications, he says, is I want you to be standing firm in one spirit, striving side-by-side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. This idea of striving side-by-side also resonated with the Philippians. Their important city was founded by Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great. Between father and son, they took over almost every piece of land around the Mediterranean Sea. Philip of Macedon fought with a military technique, was relatively new, passed on to his son. The military technique required the soldiers to line up next to each other. With their shields up front, they moved ahead side by side like one individual. It's called a phalanx. The Romans developed a version of the Greek phalanx that you see in all the movies that you watch, or y'all Christians don't watch the movies. <clears throat> I'm just joking. I realize, y'all, I've been with you six, seven, eight times now, and I know what you're saying. You're really not that funny, Dennis. Okay, so I get it. All right. What I think is funny, not necessarily, but anyway, that's a phalanx. Now, even though um, militaries are m- more sophisticated, it's still used in our country, law enforcement uses a phalanx. Bro. Paul now appeals to the Philippians' history and social context, and he aver- he, he's urging them with an image that they all get to fight alongside each other, but not in a culture war, but to advance the good news of Jesus. As sisters and brothers, we come together. We join forces using our unique gifts and talents to fight for the same cause. That's a second point we can take. Being together in one spirit means engaging in spiritual warfare together, together. Followers of Jesus are to join together, move as a powerful unit to bring good news to the city, shining light into dark places, bringing hope where there's been despair. And remember, we don't wage war against other people. We don't fight flesh and blood. Our battle is a spiritual one that has physical consequences. We stand against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We don't fight each other. We stand shoulder to shoulder as a faithful phalanx taking territory from the evil one, proclaiming freedom in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Paul is saying here that we fight as one, a united force for good that engages the demonic forces in this world without fear or intimidation. Not being worried about anything that works against us. Our God is able. We've been singing. Our God is power. He's stronger. Well, we live in a competitive society. We've got contests for everything. Cooking. Spelling, dancing. <laughs> people thumb their noses at participation trophies, and I get that because our culture doesn't really have much patience for people who struggled against opposition and managed to show up. So, I'm a fan of participation trophies because we all oh, it must be an inside joke, sorry. We only seem to care if our kids are better than the other kids. I was a kid who got bused to school. My commute was at least an hour. And my friends, they could walk to school or ride their bikes. We had long days. And many of us I, I'm a product of the 60s—many of us who got bust in the 60s, we didn't have the same economic resources as our white classmates. So consequently, showing up was a big deal, even if you want the best. And I know for some that winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, but that sort of competitive mindset actually works against the collaborative way that Christians are called to embody. So y'all can hit at me later, but you know, I'll be gone after February, so y'all can can work that one out, at least from up here, and y'all can work that one out. But I really think the competitive spirit that's at work in our society hurts us. My last point for today gets at the heart of what it means to be together in one spirit. The beginning section of Philippians 2 is helpful, showing us what's necessary for joyful solidarity. And there's, there's no secret here. Paul is emphatic. He says that being together in one spirit requires humility. Now I could say a whole lot about this. I, I, um, uh, the, the word that he uses—and I'm not going to give you this Greek lesson, don't worry—but it's the, it's the only time it's used positively. His contemporaries, the Stoics and even Josephus, they use the word in a negative way. And Paul raises this profile of humility. He shows it's actually the Jesus way. Yes. Supposedly, the great composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein was asked, What instrument is the hardest to play? I don't even know if y'all ever heard of Leonard Bernstein. Now, I think about it. You know, Dan da-da, it, Dan it. Yes, yes. West Side Story. That was my little, okay. Anyway, the first one. Yeah, okay. What instrument is the hardest to play? His response was, second fiddle. Y'all know the idiom, second fiddle? Okay, good. I was going to say it's like not being in the spotlight, then I realized spotlight is also an idiom. It's also an image. Now, I don't follow professional baseball—I'm sorry, basketball—oh my goodness. (laughs) One of those sports. No, actually, I like sports. I just messed up. (laughs) Right now I'm referring to basketball. But it was about 12 years ago that the Miami Heat made news after picking up uh, some talented free agents, including LeBron James. At the time, the Lakers coach Phil Jackson, at the time he made this comment, they got great talent. There's no question about the talent they have, but talent doesn't always win. The team that shows the best teamwork will win it. And the coach had a point, because despite all the star power, the team initially struggled to win a championship. A year after Coach Phil Jackson's comments, a publication coming out of the business world featured an article entitled, What LeBron James and the Miami Heat Teach Us About Teamwork. At one point in the article, the author writes about the chemistry of teamwork. He says this, chemistry takes time. The most successful superstar teams embrace shared leadership, says Richard Hackman, a professor of social and organizational psychology at Harvard. The players respect one another's individual skills, even learn from one another. In the last year, the Miami franchise has increased in value, a league high 17%, according to Forbes. Imagine the impact an NBA title would have. The biggest obstacle to getting there is the blame game. Will the players resist second-guessing one another when they fall behind? True brothers don't point fingers. They believe in their mission and fight hard to cover one another's back. This is what any team aspires to, passion, unity, and an absolute conviction that you can achieve whatever you want as a group. There's a lot to be said for how we all work together in the days and weeks ahead. The right chemistry requires humility. The right chemistry requires humility amen my brother <laughs> you've all been gracious listeners when i mention some of my academic work or if i talk about a greek word and stuff like that I, this this is fun for me so i appreciate it i won't get carried away but i did um submit a manuscript to a publisher of a biblical analysis of humility It's going through the editing process right now it's been it's, oh thank you it's a, it's a big deal to me to trace the nature of humility in the Bible and see, not, what, what does it mean biblically speaking? Because humility is critical for healthy Christian community, but it often gets misunderstood and maligned. Humility is not the same as humiliation, even though the words have a, a, a common English background. Humility is a voluntary position of submission to God. When we submit to God, we become increasingly aware of others. We are increasingly aware of injustice. We are increasingly aware of other people's pain. We become attuned to the voices of the downtrodden. We become increasingly sensitive to the needs of our neighbors. When we learn the way of humility, we find that we don't need to join every fight that people try to join us into. We don't need to respond to every insult. We don't need to be combative, argumentative, or insecure. Now, I realize some people think humility is passivity. Jesus was humble, not passive. Humility is active. It requires great strength. It takes much more power to find solutions to problems and work against injustice than to retaliate with violence. It's like what Dr. King wrote, strength to love. Indeed, it takes strength to love, and humility is love's collaborator. When it comes to—oh, I like that. I should tweet that. When it comes to such a profound and difficult thing as humility, there are so many examples. But there's only really one great example the Lord Jesus. If I'm to be the church member that I should be, contributing to the unity of the partnership, then I need to have a mind like Christ. I need to consider how Jesus operated. You might have seen there in verses 5 to 11, uh, the, the, that powerful passage—it's it's, it's even thought to be a poem. It's so poetic, your, your English Bibles pull the margins in and kind of line it out like it looks so it looks like a poem. In fact, uh, many think it was a song, an early Christian song. In the Roman tradition, they call it the Carmen Christi, the Song of Christ. It's awesome if our early church was singing this way. The song tells us about the character of Jesus. Jesus was equal with the Father, but he did not exploit his position. He didn't consider being God something that he should use for personal gain. Notice how different that is from the gods of Greek and Roman mythology. Those gods are capricious, fickle, self-centered. By contrast, Jesus wasn't fixated on power or privilege. Instead, our Lord emptied himself, poured himself out. He gave himself on behalf of others. He became a human being, taking on the form of an ordinary person, even a slave. And Jesus, God in flesh, purposefully submitted himself to the Father, becoming obedient. So obedient that he let human beings nail him to a cross, even though he had done nothing wrong. He did that for you and me. He who had not sinned let himself be nailed to the cross that your sin, my sin, the sins of many who come to believe would be forgiven. And because Jesus was the obedient son, the father then, it says in the text, super exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, that every name, God the father's desire was that Jesus be Lord. And everyone should bend the knee and hail Jesus as Lord. How do you think that sounded to Romans? This place where they would bend the knee to Caesar and hail Caesar as Lord. Paul says that God exalted Jesus, the lowly servant, born in a lowly manger, raised in lowly Nazareth. God raised him. And he shows that he's Lord of all, and the Lord of all is our Lord. And as our Lord, he deserves our allegiance. So imagine now being someone in Philippi of high status, probably even owning enslaved people. Here Paul says, consider others better than yourselves, that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. This is a paradigm shift. This is a new orientation. This means that church cannot function like the rest of Rome's competitive society, not even in the leading city of Philippi. So what's unity look like here in Newcomb? What might humility look like? What does it mean to be united, to be of one mind, to not put your own needs above the needs of others? How might that affect things like the activities you engage in, the way you make decisions? Look, I'm keenly aware of the fears humans have surrounding humility. The way Paul describes it, there is this possibility that I will be marginalized, I'll be treated like a doormat. If the way Jesus emptied himself is a model for us, then it means laying aside privilege. And what if I'm part of a minority group that never experienced privilege in society? Should I always defer to the power people in the world? I mean, after all, I've been living my life that way already. What is humility for women? For immigrants from countries that have been stereotyped and maligned, what is humility for impoverished people who never seem to catch a break? Humility is not about being a doormat. Rather, humility asks, why do we tolerate a society where people are made to be doormats? The lowly are not asked to go lower. Humility means submission to God. Those who have enjoyed relative power, position, and status, submission might involve more downward and outward movement than you might initially think. And this is to say that humility is hard. For followers of Jesus, it means that those of high status in the world should learn what it means to give up power and privilege, and those in the lower level of society might need to make sure they don't crave the same kind of abusive power and privilege that the dominant group tries to hold on to. We don't need to be like the oppressor. When we started Peace Fellowship Church in Washington, D.C., over 20 years ago, we wrestled with what a multi-ethnic church might mean, and I'm always straight with you guys. The initial core group was small, mostly African-American, but we had white friends, and in some cases uh, white spouses, who wanted to be part of the work. But some in the initial group did not want white people to be part of the start of the church until after our identity was well-formed, and we struggled. I mean, some of us had had bad experiences in so-called multi-ethnic churches where white people assumed they were in charge, tended to dominate and center themselves. So we had to have these deep discussions at the beginning. And we decided that we would never prevent anyone from coming to church, but we had to make clear that in our 90 plus percent African-American community, we would celebrate African-American culture unashamedly, develop African-American leaders. And at the start, that was part of every membership class discussion. And we did have people leave who said, oh, I realize this church is for the neighborhood. We said, glad you got the message, because that's what we're trying to say. (laughs) One young white married couple I had known, I had known them since they were single in college. They had started attending our church, and I remember the husband giving testimony when they first came and wanted to join in. They wanted to be in a church that had valued its geographic neighborhood. They had visited a few churches, and most of the pastors in D.C. actually lived in, in the Maryland suburbs, and they wanted somebody who was connected to the neighborhood. And I did live in D.C., right close to—well, actually, the church started worshiping in our house. This couple was white, so they wrestled for a while about being part of the group. And they wanted to—and this is where I will quote the husband exactly—he said they wanted to relinquish power. And this was nearly 20 years ago, as I said. That couple now lives in Nairobi, they've been in Kenya for years. There are two people who learned early on some lessons about power and privilege. I think of them as humble people that allow ministry through collaboration, realize it's not meant to be hierarchical. So I have great confidence. I got to meet with the leadership team and the staff last a weekend ago, I have great confidence that you as a community are learning and valuing and practicing the way of humility. You know it fosters unity. And that unity will allow you to engage in spiritual battle together. Folks, you're in it now. Spiritual battle is not theoretical and at some point in the future when maybe the devil's busy, the devil's always busy. Come on like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You're in the warfare now and you fight together side by side. Humble yourself. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And in God's timing, the humble will be exalted. And when God does the exalting, onlookers will have to pay attention. <laughs> Amen. Lord, we give you glory today. We thank you because you are great and greatly to be praised. I thank you so much, Lord, for the example of Jesus, the Lord of all who submitted himself and, and, and tabernacled with humanity and, and became a, like, like the rest of us, but didn't commit evil. Instead showed us the way. Oh, Lord. We want to be like that. We want to practice this way that doesn't hold on to power at every cost, that doesn't exploit position for any personal gain, that doesn't grasp and grasp and grasp, but instead gives and gives and gives. Lord, help us, because we will change the paradigm for what ministry can look like when we learn even more so how to serve one another in love. Lord, I thank you so much for new community. I thank you for what you're doing here. Lord, my heart is, is greatly warmed and encouraged seeing the way this community is striving to be like you and be light here in this city. Have your way, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.